Good morning, church family. Have you ever wondered why analogies exist? How is it that throughout human history, it has been a universal practice to use concrete objects to describe deeper, less tangible truths? For example, if I told you that my grandma is sweeter than cherry pie, you would understand me to mean that I enjoy my grandma's company and her kindness toward me more than I enjoy eating cherry pie, right? You wouldn't think that I actually think she tastes sweeter than cherry pie. It'd be kind of weird. Why is it that I can say things like, you pierced my heart, or life is a vapor, or there's sunshine on your face, and you will probably know exactly what I'm talking about. How can we understand each other when we communicate this way, using concrete objects to describe non-concrete concepts? Well, I have the answer. The answer is that God created the universe and everything in it. And God is the best communicator ever. God understands everything in the universe and he structured reality in such a way so that we we can understand deeper truths by talking about physical things. God created stars, sunshine, trees, rocks, grass, birds, eagles, ants, And he lets us use them as tools to describe spiritual concepts. But God didn't just create the natural world in this way. God actually governs human history in this way too. And there is no greater example of this than the human history recorded by God in the Old Testament. There are so many stories in the Old Testament that point to something deeper than what's actually going on, even though it's real human history that actually happened in real life. One such story is Genesis chapter 45. We'll be continuing our study of Genesis. Um, You may have noticed so far in our story of Joseph that there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus Christ. If you haven't caught on to that by now, maybe it's because you haven't been coming to church the past few weeks. I don't know. Or maybe they just haven't been clear enough. But spoiler alert, this chapter is about Joseph and it's also about Jesus Christ. Did I drop my page? Sorry. God is using this real story about Joseph and about real humans to communicate real truths about his real son, Jesus Christ. So last off we left off, last week we left off with a cliffhanger. You'll remember at this moment in Genesis that Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt a second time, and they've brought Benjamin to appease the ruler of Egypt. Little do they know that this ruler of Egypt is Joseph himself whom they betrayed 22 years ago. In the last chapter, a tragic thing happened in that Benjamin was framed as having stolen Joseph's silver cup, resulting in him being compelled to remain in Egypt as a slave for the rest of his life. Mason preached on the plea given by Judah on behalf of Benjamin, offering up his life as a substitute for Benjamin's. We stopped at the end of that plea, not knowing what Joseph's response would be. Of course, if you read ahead or if you've read your Bible before, Um, then you know what Joseph's response will be. But we were left with a cliffhanger in the sermon. This week we'll see Joseph's response. Genesis 45 can be split into two sections. The first section I'll title, Joseph Forgives. Joseph Forgives, verses 1 through 15. The second section, Joseph Provides. Joseph Provides, verses 16 through 28. 
Well, let's get started on the first section where Joseph forgives his brothers. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. And you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph overwhelmed by emotion after hearing the plea that Judah gives for Benjamin's life, cries out for all the Egyptians to leave his presence. Now Joseph is finally alone with his brothers. He begins to weep uncontrollably, so loud that even those who left his presence can hear it. His brothers stand there, likely very confused, waiting to hear what Joseph will say. Finally, Joseph speaks to his brothers. This is probably the first time He's ever spoken to them alone. It's probably the first time he's ever spoken to them without using a translator, so he's speaking in their language, finally. And what does he say in this dramatic moment? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Silence. His brothers are completely dumbstruck. They have no words to say. Awkward is not a strong enough word to describe the level of discomfort that they must be feeling right now. Joseph, the one whom they had betrayed, whom they had stripped and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, Joseph, the guilt of whose blood they had been fearing for decades, is alive and is standing in front of them right now. I bet you've hurt someone before, like Joseph's brothers. I have hurt someone before. It's easy to mask the discomfort of the guilt you feel for hurting someone if you never have to deal with them again if you never have to talk to them again. If you're rude to the waiter at the restaurant, or if you express road rage to another driver, 
you'll probably never have to talk to them again or face them. If you have an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend that you were selfish toward and you've lost contact, maybe you hope you'll never have to talk to them again. Can you imagine how it would feel if you had to sit in the same room as that person and talk to them one-on-one and talk to them about what you had done? Regardless of whether you ever have to be in this situation, the scariest thing to realize is that there is someone that you've offended and there is a 100% chance that there will be a day that you will face them one day. And that person you know already is Jesus Christ. Every evil thought you've ever thought, every idle or evil word you've ever spoken, every selfish action you've ever performed is a direct offense against the one who made you, who commands you to live for his glory, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love God with all of your heart. You will have to face God one day, and if you're outside of his grace, if you haven't been reconciled to him, that will be a very, very uncomfortable day. But brothers and sisters, there is such good news. Let's keep talking about what happens next in the passage. What does Joseph do? Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me. They do come near to him. And when they come near, what does Joseph do? Does he chew them out? Does he strike them? Does he yell at them and scream at them and say, what did you do to me 20 years ago? I can't believe you did this. No, he forgives them. He says, I am your brother, Joseph. He tells them not to be angry with themselves. This is amazing. How could Joseph say that he forgives them and that he doesn't want them to be angry with themselves after all that they had done to him? Well, Joseph gives a reason. He explains how it's possible for him to forgive his brothers. And I think the explanation that Joseph gives provides two very precious lessons for us. The first lesson has to do with how it's possible for God to forgive us. And the second lesson is why it's necessary for us to forgive others. So let's look at them one at a time. First, Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve life to preserve a remnant on earth, to keep alive many survivors. The parallel with Jesus Christ here is outstanding. Just like how it was the evil hatred of Joseph's brothers who sent him to Egypt, it was your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, in his first sermon to the Jews, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. It was you who crucified Jesus Christ. But, just as it was ultimately God who brought Joseph to Egypt, it was God, it was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge that Jesus Christ was crucified. Why would God ordain such a thing? Why would God put Jesus on the cross if it's a sinful thing for us to kill him, for us to sin against him? For it to be necessary for him to be on the cross is because of our sin. Why would God ordain that? Well, glad you asked. God sent Christ before you to preserve your life. To preserve for himself a remnant on earth. To keep alive many survivors. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the story that we're reading right now. Joseph is preserving the lives of many people. God does it for his own glory. He wants to forgive you. God wants to forgive you for your sin. So he put his son on the cross as your substitute. You sinned against him, 
but he was your substitute. He died so that you don't have to die, and now he lives so that you can live. You can be forgiven for your sins because Jesus paid the price. Praise the Lord. That is the best news you could hear today, that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. But there is another lesson here as well on why it's necessary for us to forgive others. Joseph goes on to say that God has highly exalted him, that he has made him the ruler over all the land of Egypt. God used this for Joseph's ultimate good. Joseph's not saying, hey, it's no big deal that you sold me into slavery 22 years ago. It's in the past. I've moved on. Don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. What Joseph is saying to his brothers is, yes, what you did was wrong, but God, God's goodness toward me is much too great for me to live in unforgiveness toward you. I must forgive you because God has forgiven me, and I must forgive you and be kind to you because God has been kind to me. That is the basis of our forgiveness toward each other. Because God has been kind to us, we must be kind to others. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant? There was a servant who was forgiven uh, 10,000 talents, which I did the calculation, and it's about $6 billion in today's currency. He was forgiven a lot, a whole lifetime's worth of debt. The first thing he did after he was forgiven his debt was he went to another servant, and he choked him, and he said, give me what you owe, and that servant only owed him $8,000. $8,000 compared to $6 billion he had just been forgiven. That is so ungrateful. It is so ungrateful to be unforgiving towards others when Christ has forgiven you. So, when you are offended by someone, what's the dominant thought in your mind? Is the thought, this person has offended me? Or is your thought rather, God has been so good to me I must be good to you. It is my duty and my privilege and my delight to be good to you because God has been good to me. So Joseph understands the goodness of God. Joseph has experienced the goodness of God. And he's very, very, very aware of it. Are you aware of the goodness of God toward you? Are you grateful for the heart that's beating in your chest? Are you grateful for the breath that's in your lungs? for the food that you get to eat. Those are just like the basic things, and they're already way more than what we deserve. But God has given you so much more than that. He's given you a comfortable pew to sit in right now. You probably have lunch plans, delicious food to eat, not just plain old food that's not uncomfortable to eat, but delicious food to eat. Lots of blessings that God has given us. Family members, church members, entertainment, so many things. Joseph's aware of God's goodness. We ought to be also. And after he talks about how good God has been to him, he, he says in verse 9, tell dad. He wants dad to know what God has done to him. He says, tell dad about everything that God has done for me in Egypt and how he's highly exalted me. Oh, better yet, go get dad and bring him here. I want him to experience this. I want dad to be a part of this. I want the whole family to be a part of this, and I'll provide for all of you. Bring everyone here, and I will provide for you. Joseph embraces his brothers one by one, weeping and kissing them. Benjamin weeps as well. The love that Joseph feels toward his brothers is tangible. His forgiveness for them 
is overflowing with affection for them. This is probably what he's been longing to do the whole time. It's just now is the opportunity, now that he sees that they are truly repentant. After all this, when he's proven to his brothers that he has, in fact, forgiven them, that he loves them with a love unshakable, there's no more reason for Joseph's brothers to feel uncomfortable. So, verse 15 says, they talked with him. They were silent at the beginning, but now they talk with him. They are free to speak, no longer frozen in silence. They know they are loved. And although they cannot fathom such love, they know that they now have peace with the one whom they had offended. Brothers, sisters, do you know how much Christ loves you? Do you know how much he has forgiven you? Do you know that his forgiveness toward you is overflowing with affection for you? Do you feel confident to speak with Jesus as a brother, as a friend? I sometimes don't feel this way, to be honest. I sometimes feel distant from Christ. Um, sometimes feel remote, like Christ is uh, not really actively loving me right now. And whenever I feel that way, my prayers are more often than not robotic. It's just kind of like a ritual. But in the moments when I'm most acutely aware of Christ's love for me, and God does grant those moments, that's when my prayers are the most natural, the most free, and the most joyful. When I have faith that God actually is hearing me right now. When I know that he loves me as his friend, as his child, as Christ's brother. So I pray for all of you that you will experience this. God does grant it. God does grant for you to feel the amount of love that he has for you. Well, we've seen Joseph forgive his brothers, but it doesn't stop here. It's not just forgiveness that he offers his brothers. Let's go into the next section where we'll see Joseph provide for his family. Verses 16 through 28. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his, fathers, to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, 
And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. When Pharaoh heard that Joseph's family was in town, he was pleased to provide for them. Pharaoh, who didn't even know Joseph's family, must have been such a big fan of Joseph that anyone who was connected with him was automatically on Pharaoh's friend list. Joseph's family's in town? Okay, let's get to work. Joseph loads them up. Wagons and wagons of food and grain, donkeys loaded with provision, changes of clothes. Benjamin is given pounds and pounds of silver. And if that isn't enough, it says that there are ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. I don't know what the good things of Egypt are, but after that whole list, it seems pretty good. So much generosity. What is the meaning of all this? Why is Joseph being so generous to Jacob? It almost seems unnecessary if you ask me. After all, aren't they sending the wagons to go get Jacob and bring him to Egypt? Why do they need to bring all of these treasures to present to Jacob if he's just going to come to Egypt anyway? Why can't he wait a little bit longer and see the treasures after he comes to Egypt? What's the point? Well, I think the answer is this. Joseph wants Jacob to experience the riches that he has for him as soon as possible. He wants Jacob to see the treasures that he has laid up for him as quickly as possible, and he just can't wait to give him those treasures. Brothers and sisters, do you see the connection? Christ is that way toward you. He is the same way. He wants you to experience his love now. He wants you to experience joy in him now. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to be happy. Jesus wants you to be happy. It's a good thing to be happy, to be happy in him and his riches that he provides for you. And guess what? He has sent riches that you have access to now, before you die, before you go to heaven. Ephesians 1 speaks of the Holy Spirit as a down payment that guarantees our entrance into heaven. Ephesians 4 speaks of pastors and teachers as gifts from Christ to help train the body to build itself up, to build each other up and love. You have your brothers and sisters in Christ, church members, to encourage you every day. Do you spend time with church members? Do you make an effort to hang out with church members? Psalm 119 speaks of God's word, which you have right in front of you as treasure, more valuable than countless thousands of gold and silver coins. God's Bible is sweeter than honey, according to Psalm 119. God's law, His word, His commandments, that's describing the Bible, is sweeter than honey. It's a treasure provided for you now, and you're not even in heaven yet. If you're not happy, are you reading the Bible? Are you meditating on it? Are you chewing on it? Are you praying to God through the power of the Holy Spirit and communing with Him now, before you see Him face to face? You have access to these treasures now. If you aren't happy, use these treasures. Spend time with your church members. Encourage them. Build them up. The Bible has so many things listed in it. So many treasures that Christ has given you to help you now. You don't have to wait. So, Joseph, after loading them up with food and treasure, he sends his brothers back home to fetch their father. But before he does so, he says one last thing. After all that, after all the generosity, the forgiveness, the affection, the love, 
Joseph has one priority for his brothers. And that priority is that they don't quarrel on the way. Seems kind of like, after all that, like, how could you expect them to quarrel on the way after receiving so much forgiveness and love and like all that drama that just happened? But Joseph knows his brothers. Joseph knows how prone they are to fight. And Joseph knows that everyone has a sin nature. And even after receiving so much love, so much grace, so much of an emotional experience, the ordinary annoyances of family life can still get to you. It's a real thing, and Joseph is aware of it. So he plainly says, don't quarrel on the way. How simple is that? Don't complain about how much Levi stinks. Don't talk about how Reuben's donkey is walking too slow. And don't complain about the fact that Benjamin has five changes of clothes and 300 shekels of silver, and you don't. Joseph is aware that these people are going to be jealous. They have a sin nature, and they might quarrel on the way. So he tells them not to. Well, there's a connection for us also. You're also on a journey with the family. Look around you. These are your family members. And Christ commands us not to quarrel on the way. Christ does not want us to quarrel on the way. You and your fellow church members have all been forgiven by Christ. Maybe you've had an emotional experience. Maybe you've felt his love for you. But you can still be tempted to quarrel with each other and be impatient with each other while you're on your way to that destination. I know it can be really hard to love your brother, especially because you're sinful and your brother is sinful. But if you'd allow me, I'd like to give you a tip. Whenever you're tempted to feel angry towards your brother, remind yourself of two things. Two things. The first thing is who that person is in God's eyes. And the second thing is who that person will be once they get to heaven. And the answer to both of these is actually the same. The answer is that they are perfect. Your brother, your sister is perfect in God's eyes. And one day they will be perfect and you will see how perfect they are and it will be flooring to see how perfect this person is whom Christ is sanctifying. So when someone sins against you, a brother, a sister, a member of the church, tell yourself that's not who they really are. That's not who God says they are. That's not who they one day will be in heaven. That is their old sin nature creeping up and trying to win them over again, and I won't allow it. I won't allow myself to be unforgiving towards them because that's not who they really are, and I won't allow them to keep living this way. So it's an encouragement because you can help them become more like who they really are, but it also helps you to know that God has declared them righteous, and one day they will be righteous, and you can imagine What does perfect so-and-so look like when they're offending me? Of course, you don't know. It'll be so much more glorious than you can imagine. But it's a helpful thought, and I think that's biblical to think that way towards each other. Well, the brothers of Joseph have been sent on their way. They come home to Jacob. Jacob's old. He's probably wringing his hands, sitting on the front porch, anxiously wondering, if Benjamin's going to return, if any of his sons will return, let alone return with food. And they do return. And they're bringing wagons of food and everything that he had asked them to bring. And they tell him the news. They say to him, Joseph is alive. And he's the ruler of Egypt. And Jacob, can you imagine how he felt? 
It's like unbelievable. Too good to be true. Way too good to be true. He numbs his heart. This is everything. It goes against everything he's believed for the past two decades. He's probably thinking, how could you tease me like this? That is not true. And he no longer feels any emotions at all. But then, two things. Two proofs to Jacob. The first is the word that Joseph sent to Jacob. The longing that Joseph had for him. The message he wanted his brothers to give him. That he wants him to come to Egypt. And the second thing is the treasures, the provision, the wagons that Joseph had sent to provide for Jacob. And these prove to Jacob that Joseph is alive. And Jacob is just astonished. His spirit revives. He feels emotion again, and he's, he feels things he's probably never felt or hasn't felt for decades. Love and longing for his son. And he says, Joseph is alive. I will return to him before I die. I really honestly can't imagine how this felt. I haven't even suffered the loss of a family member as close as a parent or a child or a sibling. I haven't suffered the loss of someone like that yet, but I know many of you have, and I'm sure the sorrow of such a tragedy is more than I can imagine. I will say this, though. Several years ago, I had a dream while I was sleeping, and in that dream, I received the news that my mother had died. And I didn't watch her die, but I received the news, and I knew that it was true that my my mom was dead. I don't know about you, but whenever I dream, oftentimes the dream has a way of like making me feel my emotions way stronger than I would feel in real life. Actually, it's probably a good thing because they're more in proportion to whatever's happening in the dream. So I really did feel the weight of this. When I was faced with the reality of my mom's death in that dream, I was filled with so much sorrow, perhaps more than I've ever felt in my waking hours. And while I was contemplating her passing, I was just struck with the weight of the truth that I would never talk to her again, that I would never feel her hugs and her kisses again, that I would never experience the joy of being in her presence again. I'm fairly certain that there's no one alive in this world who loves me more than my mom does. I often take her love for granted, and in this dream, that love that I had often taken for granted was gone forever. The one who loved me the most was dead. Then I woke up and I realized my mom is not dead. She's alive. The one who loves me the most is still alive. Christian, there's one who loves you more than anyone else in the whole world, and he is alive today. He is still alive. The one who loves you the most is alive. Don't sleep on that fact. Jesus Christ is alive, and his love for you is real. His love for you isn't distant. His love for you is present here, even now, today. And it's not going to go away. Yes, you sinned against him, but he died for you. He has forgiven you, and his forgiveness is overflowing with affection for you. And he wants to bestow riches and provision and joy on you now. And he's calling you to himself, just like Joseph is calling Jacob to himself. He's provided you so much evidence of his love for you. Look around at the church members around you. He's placed you here. 
He's given you people to encourage you. He loves you, and he wants you to have joy. Do you believe that Jesus longs for you? Do you really believe that? That Jesus wants you to experience his love? It's true. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, his love for you is unimaginable. So, so deep. Remember what we, what we sang in Psalm 103 this morning. Um, the ESV version says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Maybe you don't feel Christ's love as much as you could or as much as you ought to because you're forgetting his benefits. Keep a record of his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He helps you to stop sinning. He redeems your life from the pit. You won't go to hell. You'll go to heaven. You'll be resurrected one day and you'll stand before him face to face. And he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Keep a record of God's goodness toward you. I know it's hard to uh, control your emotions, and I obviously can't manipulate you into feeling the weight of Christ's love, but we can pray for it, can't we? We can pray for Christ's love to be made known to us. Ephesians 3 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. It requires strength to comprehend what you're about to hear. So that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that you would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ for you, because Christ does love you, and he can allow you to feel the weight of that. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you forgive our iniquity, and cleanse our diseases, and that you make known your love to us with undeniable proofs. Lord, please grant us strength to believe this and to know that you love us. I pray for every individual in this room right now, for those who have embraced you as their Lord and Savior, pour your love into their heart and make it known to them that you love them with a love incorruptible, and for any who are unconverted, Lord, you have the power. You have the power to change them, to cause them to repent and to trust in you. Lord, fill them with your love also. Please give us strength to comprehend your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.